We are starting with what is happening in India and absolutely heartbreaking scenarios. Overwhelmed crematoriums working round the clock to keep the pace. But the wave of bodies keeps coming. Mass cremations and funeral pyres now lighting the streets in New Delhi. The government facing criticism for the crisis. Just last month, the health minister declaring India was in the end game of the pandemic. The prime minister admitting that India let down its guard after cases fell earlier in the year. Let's bring in Sukhmeet Singh Sachal, who has family in India, has been uh, tweeting about this as well. Sukhmeet, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, what, how, what do you know at this point, or have you been able to get more information from family members and a better idea what's happening? Yeah, I've been on the phone constantly with my family members in India, my aunts, my uncles, and my cousins, and they're all just saying the situation is so dire. It's something that they've never seen before, and just seeing the images and the videos that are coming out from there is just heartbreaking, to say the least. Um, People are running out of oxygen. The entire hospital, if you can believe it, has no oxygen at all, and that's just something that, for us, living here is just so shocking to hear about. It really is. And even seeing the images and hearing people talk about this and when we talk about it here about the idea of putting pressure on the hospitals and taking these measures now to stop hospitals from being overwhelmed, I don't think we really get the, the importance of that or, or what could happen uh, until we see something, unfortunately, something as tragic as this. Right. I, I cannot agree more with that. Just hearing my uh, cousin sister telling me about how they literally had to go around at nighttime begging for oxygen cylinders uh, because there was none available for her father-in-law who has COVID and her entire family has COVID right now. And um, he finally got admitted to a hospital um, bed. And that was also such a challenge just to get admission into a hospital because they're overflowing with people. People are being turned away. And it's literally like a scene from a horror movie where people are now dying on the streets without any oxygen, without any care. Hospitals are overburdened. Physicians are burning out. They don't have the supplies available to treat patients. It's truly something that's out of my wildest imaginations. And especially as a medical student as well, I'm sitting here, I'm doing this work uh, in our South Asian communities across Canada here, but seeing everything happen there, I feel so helpless that I can't go there and do something about it. Uh, yeah, and I saw the the list of messages that you sent out uh, from uh, your cousin's sister as well. And, and I think what, what is so striking, or one of the things about that too, is when she says after a lot of effort, they were able to get a hospital mm-hmm. bed. But even then, th- that wasn't the end of the struggle at all. Then that opened up a whole other, a whole other type of struggle. Right. They are still trying to figure out how they can treat their father-in-law. It's truly such a challenging process because, again, physicians are really burning out right now. They don't have the resources available to treat patients properly. I know in October of 2020, I was actually just talking to my uncle, and my aunt in India passed away in October of 2020 from COVID. And he was saying on the phone that at least she had all the treatment necessary. She had all the people taking care of her, and unfortunately, she did not survive that. But now imagine if your loved one or someone that you know is going to die from COVID and can't get treated, can't, they're just basically, they're helpless. And I think that is the hardest part right now is to see that there aren't any people helping them 
through this process, it's really something that's uh, disheartening, to say the least. Uh, in that report I played uh, right off the the top, mm-hmm. just before I brought you on, there was a, there was a line in there about saying that that people uh, in India uh, there was this sense that they had turned a corner or that they had had were getting to the other side of this pandemic. What is it do you think that happened that we've gone from people thinking that they were uh, turning a corner to where things are today? I think there's a mix of factors that play into a role in the situation. I think people not taking COVID seriously. I still know so many people who are still in India and they're still partying. Uh, They're not really taking the precautions properly. But at the same time, the government as well is failing their people as well. They haven't set up the adequate resources for hospitals to have the capacity to deal with COVID. And I was shocked to see that there were images of rallies happening in India where the government is going around preaching and everything uh, without masks, without any social distancing of any kind. And they're just there uh, promoting their own agendas while people, the common people are dying on the streets without the resources that they need. And I I was telling a bit about to another news station before uh, in India, usually an oxygen cylinder, for instance, costs around $8 Canadian. And now with the black market, it's selling for around $800 or more. And Mm -hmm. so if you can think about it, a common person cannot afford that. And that's more than sometimes their entire salary for a year. And so now to treat people and their families, multiple people now, because most families, if one person contracts COVID, the entire family contracts it. And so it's really showcasing the health inequities that are uh, being displaced across India right now. Uh, yeah, I mean, even that's so hard to even uh, fathom the idea of being able to buy a, an oxygen cylinder mm-hmm. and then and then that somebody would take advantage and and be selling it for that much uh, money when really we're talking about uh, scenarios of life and death. Exactly. And I think it's really sad that the government is not stepping up right now. What we're seeing is actually a lot of voluntary groups stepping up to really help people um, in a lot of the sick Gurdwaras in India, they're actually turning their Langar halls, which is basically an area where they provide free meals to people 24-7. They're turning it into oxygen Langars, where now they're recruiting and buying oxygen so that they can give it to people for free. And so if people are now being turned away from the hospital, for instance, they are going in their cars and they're going to the Gurdwaras or where they're being hooked up to these oxygen lines so that they can breathe. Uh, you mentioned as well, and, and not to suggest that, that anyone would, would deserve to get this virus, but when you talked about people not taking the virus seriously, uh, even some footage I saw yesterday was uh, of a ceremony taking place, and I had to stop and think, well, is that file footage? No, that's, that's happening right now. Do you think there will be, will this be enough to, to maybe get people to take it more seriously and to understand, like you said, if one person gets this in your family, you're all mm-hmm. going to get it, and it's going to continue spreading uh, if if, if this activity, if this behavior continues? I think at the end of the day, if it's something that doesn't impact your family right away, it's hard for people to understand what is going on. But as soon as it impacts your family, then people will take it seriously. And I think that's a sad reality of human nature is that we are not connected to an issue, even if we see it near us. But if it's not impacting our families, people don't really take action against it. And I think that's why it's so important as we continue forward in this pandemic and future of our countries around the world is really to invest in public health infrastructure where we make sure that we have these things allocated ahead of time, 
make sure that we have targeted public health messaging in place so that people really understand the severe consequences from their actions. If they don't go outside and they stay inside, if they have the luxury to stay inside, like, please stay inside. If you need to go outside, please wear a mask. Stay socially distant from people that you don't interact with on a daily basis. Stay within your family bubble. And I think that's really what we can do right now. I'm not really sure what else they can do except really try to preach to the people to please stay home if you can and protect yourself, protect your loved ones and people around you. Uh, and Sukmi, just uh, before I let you go, I know uh, Joe Biden has talked about there's the potential to send more vaccine uh, to India uh, with the United States sharing this. Uh, do you think is, is there the will at least to, to get vaccinated and, and would that help in the, in the long term as far as getting more vaccine and getting more people uh, vaccinated in India? I absolutely think any help can really help the people in India right now. If we send vaccines to them, I think the more people that can get vaccinated, the better it will be for the situation and for the public health infrastructure in India. If we can send oxygen tanks, we can send technologies that people can use at their house to monitor their vitals, for instance. I think all these little things can add up and really help make a difference. So I really think that what Joe Biden has stated is going to be something that can help the people of India for sure. All right, Sukhmeet, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for taking some time to share this with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right, that is Sukhmeet Singh Satchel, a BC resident, uh, has several family members currently living in India. Well, the mayor of West Vancouver is going public about her very personal struggle with COVID and how her husband was fighting COVID-19. And Marianne Booth, who is the mayor of West Vancouver, joins me now on the line. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you, Jill, for having me. I want to talk a little bit more about how things unfolded, because I think it's a very important message, not only that your husband shows that anybody can get this virus, but the fact that you, it appears that both you and your husband were being very, being very careful, uh, getting vaccinated, but this, this still happened. So can you kind of tell us how things unfolded? Yeah, sure. So um, around, uh, well, on April 6th, I got vaccinated. It was the first opportunity I could get in to get um, my vaccine at a drugstore. And then um, my husband, John, got uh, his vaccine on the Friday, um, the 9th. And um, almost immediately, he started feeling not well. Um, And uh, we both just kind of wrote it wrote it off as side effects from the uh, the vaccine. And <clears throat> we were kind of re- reassured because I had a friend who got a vaccine exactly the same time as him, and she wasn't feeling well either. So, you know, we started getting really fatigued and feverish and chills and aches. And he literally um, went into bed, like on the Friday, he just was not feeling well. And then Saturday, Sunday, still wasn't feeling well. And so by Monday, when he wasn't getting better and, and my friend, her symptoms had disappeared, um, he said, I, I better get, go get tested. So he went to the testing, session, uh, um, testing center in North Vancouver, and uh, it, he went first thing in the morning and it got, came back positive within um, 12 hours or so. I think he heard about it that night. And then immediately he went into uh, isolation, which was really hard. I mean, we, fortunately, we have a spare room, bedroom with a um, ensuite bathroom. 
Um, any, but I, I can't imagine how people cope if you're in a small condo because literally uh, he did not open the door for two weeks. Wow. And and just to, to clarify, did doctors tell you then, was it, do you believe then that John already had been infected and he maybe just wasn't showing symptoms yet, but he had been infected maybe, I, I assume, before he even got vaccinated? Yeah. Yeah. And we were just talking about it. And he, I was saying, so you had no symptoms when you went for the vaccine? And he reminded me that um, I was, I dropped him off. I was going into work and he had said, well, and he didn't sleep well the night before. Mm. He really was tossing and turning. So that was the only thing. He really wasn't showing any other symptoms at that point, but they came on really quickly. But yes, I, I think the general um, consensus among all the practitioners that we talked to was that he was already incub- incubating the uh, virus. Right. So it was just a, a very strange coincidence then. It sounds like mm-hmm. that he happened to develop the symptoms right after getting the vaccine. Yeah. And it was really kind of unfortunate because, um, you know, I he wasn't isolating until um, the Sunday night he went into different rooms. So um, I was exposed and honestly, just seeing how he was totally knocked out um, every day, he would say, and how are you feeling? And my daughter lives at home, my 24-year-old daughter. And he was, I think, more worried about us in some ways. And we were fine. We were in quarantine immediately. Um, and we um, we just... Yeah, so he was he was quite concerned about us getting infected um just because we didn't isolate in sooner. Right. But every day that um I was symptom free, I was quite um happy that I had got the vaccine because if I hadn't got the vaccine as soon as possible, I would have been um second I would have been even more worried, but every day that I was healthy, I thought okay, my body is producing antibodies because of the vaccine. So it was the AstraZeneca vaccine. And, you know, at the time that I booked it, um, there was some hesitancy out there with people. But I thought, you know what, I'm getting it. I was listening to the experts. And I'm so glad that I did and did it, did not turn it down or delay it. I just did it because that gave me such peace of mind. And even if I guess I come down with it, at least I could say that I did everything I could because I went in as quickly as I could, given the the um, that they were opening it up to my age group. Right. And now being that close of a contact, did you end up, did you have to get tested at all or just self-isolate and monitor? Yeah, I didn't get tested. They said I didn't have to get tested unless I showed symptoms, but they did say if you have any symptoms at all, go get tested because then that'll determine your um, isolation um, but no, I, I, to be honest, aside from the stress, I actually, and I, my sleep was interrupted because we were all, I think we were all just in a bit of shock. And uh, other than that, no, I, I felt fine. And how is your husband then? That must have been stressful too, knowing like, like, like you said, thankfully you had the space that you were all able to isolate mm-hmm. in, in the same mm-hmm. home, but not knowing how he was doing on the other side of the door. How was that? You know what? It was really, it was really hard because um, we've all heard the stories of people that um, didn't don't go into the hospital, and then you know there's been people that have passed away, and so 
he, I mean, he was even worried that he was going to not wake up in the morning. And um, the one other saving uh, thing that we had done is I had my mom had bought an oximeter for uh, our family, which is just a little device to test your blood oxygen level. And we'd had that for already a couple months. And uh, um, so he was actually taking his blood oxygen level readings very regularly. Um, just because, you know, if they drop below a certain number, um, and if by the time you can't breathe, it's almost too late. And so that was giving him peace of mind as well. And then he was taking his temperature. But the fever really, the fever persisted for honestly over, almost 10 days, hmm. um, having a fever. And you're kind of um, delusional a little when you have a fever and restless and just not comfortable. And I understand, too, that he doesn't know where he came in contact, where he got the virus. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think you really ever can really pinpoint um, where you got it from. Yeah, he doesn't really know. How is he doing now? He's doing great. Thank you for asking. Um, he's um, turned the corner. I guess he's the fever went away on about Wednesday. By Friday, he came out of the bedroom because the health official said that by Wednesday he could probably come out given the 10 days from his showing symptoms but he didn't come out until the Friday um, and he started his appetite came back and he uh, was up and about but he he lost 15 pounds over the two weeks Hmm. and because he was only eating a couple hundred calories a day he just couldn't eat he was drinking lots of fluids um, what she was told to do. And he also had, because he wasn't getting better, he did go into the urgent primary care center in North Van, and they sent him to Lionsgate to have um, blood work and chest x-rays, but they sent him home. So he never had the respiratory issues that um, people get, which was also um, a blessing. Yeah. Yeah, no, and it is a good uh, kind of a cautionary tale on on why we're being so careful and doing this. Mm-hmm. Like you said, if your husband and again uh, doesn't know obvious place and where you would get it, and not somebody with uh, with underlying health concerns or anything, and 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 there you go, kind of knocked down for a good two weeks by this virus. Mm-hmm. Yep, and he has no underlying health conditions, no fit, healthy, um, eats right, everything, and uh, it yeah, and the fact that. My daughter and I did not get it is also a bit of a miracle, um, given everything. But literally, we were taking away his dishes with rubber gloves and double masks. And I was doing laundry, his laundry with with uh, practically a hazmat suit on. Um, I mean, you have to take it really seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mayor, before I let you go, I wanted to ask you uh, one of the other stories that is making news headlines. Uh, first, it's great that, that your husband is doing better, and that is a great a cautionary tale uh, to get to people. Uh, the Hollyburn Country Club has come under fire uh, after uh, apparently a few people got emails inviting them to uh, an exclusive clinic. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I did issue an, a statement, and um, I I was appalled by that. I didn't get the original invitation, but I have since received another letter explaining what had happened. Um, it's a personal decision. Uh, it's We are in extraordinary times. 
we're in a pandemic. And if we all follow the rules and um, work together and wait our turn, then uh, we're, we're going to come out of this. Um, and so I just really felt that there were other things, but this kind of was the straw that broke the camel's back for me. And I um, canceled my membership. Did you? Did they give any, or did you? Were you able to get any explanation from the country club as to to whose idea it was, or why they thought it was okay to have a, an exclusive invite only vaccination clinic? I I didn't. I just saw I, CBC, which is you know a reputable news um, outlet, um, published the story. I saw it on Friday. I I was horrified when I saw it, and um, and then I saw the letter through the media and it just it sends out the complete wrong message and quite honestly that's not our my community and the way that I want West Vancouver to be portrayed and um, that it's important to me to to stand up for things when you you don't agree with it so um, that's why I took the personal decision that I did and that was to to cancel your membership yes all right, uh, Mayor Booth, thank you so much uh, for both uh, sharing the story uh, of your husband's uh, uh, battle with COVID. It's great to, to hear that he is better and that you uh, and your daughter didn't get the virus, but good to get that information out there for people. Uh, thanks so much for joining us and talking about this today. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity, Jill. Have a nice day. All right, you too. That is Marianne Booth, the mayor of West Vancouver. Well, you might have heard this on the news. The European Union set to allow vaccinated U.S. tourists to be start, to start visiting this summer. And it's kind of restarted the conversation or continued the conversation about vaccine passports. So let's bring in Claire Newell, president of Travel Best Bets, to chat a bit more about this. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me, Jill. Yeah, this was pretty um, big news in the world of travel that the U.S., you know, who would have thunk a year ago um, with the U.S. being really, it was, you know, the pandemic was raging there. Um, it was probably like a undesirable, um, on the undesirable list as far as Europe was concerned a year ago. And now they're at the front line of global travelers free to resume leisure trips there and no definite date on this yet. Um, but the, the, you know, the, the kind of terms of this have been agreed upon between the EU and the U.S. They just have to now work out the kinks. The biggest thing was that, um, they needed to make sure that the blocks drug regulatory uh, approve those three vaccines that are being used in the U.S., which are Moderna, Pfizer, and Johnson and & Johnson. And really, um, they have to be fully vaccinated. For those who've, who've listened, know that that means both shots of Pfizer or Moderna and the one shot Johnson & Johnson, 14 days after that, um, they will be free to go. And I've been saying this for a while. The reality is in the interim, it is going to be a vaccinated person's world. So if you've been thinking twice about getting it, I recommend you get it. Uh, yeah, if, if, if for nothing else, then travel. If uh, travel is your motivation, uh, I mean, it would be a bit strange that you would think that health would be your motivation. But if it's travel, exactly. then that's then that's uh, where you're going to go. Uh, so uh, how do you think it would look, though? Is it something that you would have a, a, a separate? Is it your actual vaccine record that you would have to travel with? Or are they talking about something like a stamp and a passport that shows you've been vaccinated? It could be a number of different things. At this stage of the game, the really low-tech solution is going to be your actual 
actual vaccine certificate that's issued from whichever government um, you would be going. So for in the U.S., CDC has a very small piece of paper, very similar to the ones we get here in Canada, um, and they would have to both be dated the and the vial numbers and everything on it. Uh, and But majority uh, of my thoughts on this would be that it will be very similar to what they're using in the EU, which is they're pushing toward a digital green certificate. And what that would be is something that would be a digital uh, option so that when you're going through uh, customs, it's much faster, you know, to be able to show that there is something that's um, quickly done. You've done all the downloading before you actually travel, and then you show your likely a QR code and be able to go through wherever it is you want to go, whether that's into a country or if it's, you know, on board a cruise ship or into a hotel that requires it. You know, there's I think that there's going to be a lot of different um, organizations and countries that are going to require uh, the proof of the vaccine in the interim. I'm not saying forever, but uh, the likelihood of you going on um, cruises into concerts and that type of thing, more than likely we'll have to show that, that you've got some sort of vaccine. And this is what the EU solution is. You can read more about it if you do a quick Google search on that digital green certificate. It's not quite out yet, um, but they will likely use it on airlines as well. And do you think that one is is more safe as far as fraud? Because one of the first thing that come first things that comes up with, the, especially I think with the paper forms, is well, there's always going to be people trying to get around something, trying to scam the system, and using a fake type passport. To, and what kind of problems does that lead to? I know, and that's really the big thing. That there's those two main concerns are those kind of fraudulent certificates and personal privacy because you don't want to be sharing that. And and I think that they're going to have to find a way to do that, but they are so committed. I mean, this charge is led by Greece, but also other countries like Spain, Italy, Portugal, um, Croatia, that welcome millions of, in this case, American tourists each summer, and they really depend on it for their income and their jobs, and they're going to do whatever it takes to be able to to make sure that they, that they reduce the, the risk of frauds and... and and they certainly are not going to allow people's privacy to be compromised in any way. The information that I've seen for whichever passes that there are, there's um, the IATA travel pass, there's the common pass, um, the digital green certificates, which are being used in the EU. There's a number of them. They all ha- seem to have this digital um, format where you actually, there, there's modes. So the IATA one, I, I like the best. I think it'll be the one that the airlines jump toward first. So you may need to use a couple of different options, Jill, but they, they show where the information um, is that you need for what particular country you're going into, where to get the that, um, whether it's a vaccine or test, you know, that, that you need. And in many cases, it's just uh, a proof of a negative PCR test or whatever type of test you need to do that. Um, but you'll upload that information and then you will likely put in all sorts of other information that cross-references. But then it, the information will be stored on your particular device. So you only show it when you need to show it to the airline or to um, a customs agent. But it, it keeps it really streamlined because the reality is, is I, I you know, the, think the person who, who said it best was the CEO of British Airways, Sean Doyle, who said, if we had to look at the documentation for everyone, it would take 20 minutes per, per guest. So you can imagine as travel ramps up, um, the line ups that you would have to endure. So uh, a digital solution will come. But at the moment, it may be a low tech solution for the countries that, that do allow it opening up. 
But what's interesting about this, um, not sure how much time we have, Jill, but I do think that this is how it's going to open up. It's going to be for vaccinated people only. It's going to be the, the countries that are doing a good job, like Australia, New Zealand, South Korea. The U.S. is obviously on pace. Britain's on pace um, to do well. And as they reach herd immunity, they will be allowed into certain countries. And certain countries will be allowed into their countries um like the u.s will open up to certain countries it's not going to be a blanket okay we're open to the world um and i think that's canada's approach moving forward it's not going to be like the blanket close we had may 13th of 2020 but it will certainly be uh let's look at each country how they're doing and how we're doing and then it might be right to open up that bubble between them right because it's not uh, i think uh, one of these stories too is it kind of looked like it was a one-way thing of of the eu inviting americans but you've got to think it's also what's happening in the member countries of the eu whoever's signing on to this they've got to maintain and still be in a really good position too yeah and that's why um the they are even though this is recommended that the eu open up to everybody and all countries do the same thing there will be individual member st- states that will reserve the right to keep stricter limits however they want to do that so um you still it's not just look at your the eu open you will have to look at each country individually if you want to plan if you're an American (laughs) and sometime in summer you're allowed to let's you know at the end of the day um, I'm most concerned about Canada as everyone is listening because majority of your your audience is a Canadian audience Um, you know it's what this is for me is hopeful that once we reach herd immunity we may be added to that short list of countries with you know low uh, case counts of the virus that we are then welcome in to, to to countries if we choose if we are vaccinated because that's like I say that seems to be the way it's going I mean um, if you're vaccinated it seems to be the golden ticket with respect to travel at least uh, do you see this also leading then to the cruise ship industry to other industries that have also been devastated and been been basically put on hold I do I absolutely in cruise ships uh, industry is actually leading the charge on this. Any um, any cruise lines that have said that they're going to resume uh, cruises, they have said that they not just the the passengers but the crew will all need to be vaccinated. There will still be all the protocols. They'll still need to be tested, likely before they go. And if you were watching the Oscars, Oscars, you probably saw that they you know they were all tested right up until they went in. That's what it's going to be like, and there'll still be protocol w- on board those ships. But that is the only way in the interim until there is worldwide herd immunity, that people will feel safe and comfortable going on board. They'll still have lower capacity. They'll still have plexi up. They'll still have hand sanitizing stations and ask people to socially distance. But um, that's just the reality moving forward. You know, you can't ask people to travel if they don't feel confident and a fully vaccinated tour or cruise or in some cases, it may be the flights. They may say, you know, if you want, Qantas was threatening that. They were saying, if you want to come on our planes, you may need to be vaccinated. That that has not come to fruition. But there there may be companies that decide that that's the way they want to go. And so if you choose not to be vaccinated, you choose not to travel to certain countries on certain types of vacations in the interim. All right. I think the word you used, uh, especially uh, looking at this uh, deal with the, the EU and the, the United States, hopeful is a good way uh, of uh, of describing it. Yeah, thanks. It, it, it really is. It is hopeful, Jill. All right. Claire, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it. My pleasure.
Claire Newell, the president of Travel Best Bets. A vote is expected this evening at the Vancouver School Board on whether or not the school liaison officer program will continue, continue as is, or be scrapped altogether. Earlier today, Sergeant Steve Addison with the Vancouver Police Department was asked about the program and his thoughts on having that program in schools. We feel strongly that school liaison officers play an important role in the schools, currently we have 15 constables who work in, in high schools and elementary schools throughout Vancouver. Uh, they provide uh, a number of services to young people in the schools. And um, this ranges from everything from um, school liaison officers who volunteer their time on weekends to help train uh, teenagers for um, their first 10K in a running club. Our uh, school liaison officers provide valuable guidance and mentorship to young people. Everything from helping teens fill out college applications to giving them a pep talk when they've had a a rough day to putting them on the straight and narrow when they're starting to veer off course. They hold workshops and counsel kids on things like um, vaping, sexting, the dangers of internet exploitation, bullying, peer pressure. Let's bring in Minakshi Mano, criminalization and policing campaigner with the Pivot Legal Society. Talk a bit if you can. I know Pivot Legal uh, has been one of the groups uh, that is opposed to, to having this program, would like to see the program out of schools. Why is that? Yeah, so since last year, Pivot's been supporting the call to remove police from schools. Um, that's the program known as the School Liaison Officer. And in June, we wrote a letter of support to the school board, um, and that was following the launch of a petition called Police Free Schools or Safer Schools, which ended up getting over 2,800 signatures, also supporting that call to remove police from schools. And more recently, we've supported student and tonight um, parent and educator-led press conferences where folks from the community are speaking out, and in particular, Black and Indigenous folks from the community are speaking out about um the importance of removing police from schools in order to create safe and affirming learning environments for all students. So what is the, the, the problem or what are the main issues that have been raised by some, by people who say they would like to see the program end? Well, first off, um, and this has been reflected in the third party review that the VSC itself um, contracted, Black and Indigenous students have made it clear that they do not feel safe or supported by the presence of police officers in schools. Um, and, you know, this is more broadly supported by some research around school liaison or school resource officer programs across North America, where we see that the presence of police in schools turns what might be, you know, disciplinary issues or community issues within the school, it funnels them into the criminal justice system. Um, you know, and we're in this moment of reckoning around systemic racism and, of course, Systemic racism is evident in the criminal justice system. Um, And we also hear about how students, you know, some may appreciate the programs that police are able to bring into the school. Um, But those programs are really a result of defunding the education system, right? Um, Even what Sergeant Addison described, those are programs and supports that really should be provided by youth workers, family support workers, peers, teachers and counselors. Um, but we haven't invested in that. Instead, we're relying on a VPD-funded program to do that work. 
What do you say, though, to students who say they appreciate the program, that this was the first time or the, the, the only way, really, that they came to know police officers, so were comfortable around police officers, and that they benefited from it? So I think that um, what a couple of students who've spoken out against the program have pointed out is that that's great, but, you know, the point of the program and the point of going to school, whether it's elementary or secondary school, is not to meet police officers and not be forced to interact with them, right? Police and schools really undermine the role of schools, which is to provide a safe educational environment for students. And if we hear from some students, even if we hear from a small amount of students who say that the presence of police in schools is taking away from their ability to engage in their education, we really need to uplift those voices. Do you think then, is it a case of it needs to be thrown out altogether or is there a way to revise it or to change it in some way that it is beneficial? I think the call has been very clear since last June to terminate the school liaison program to terminate the memorandum of understanding that currently dictates the role of police in schools and instead invest in hiring and supporting the correct, the properly trained people who could provide the services that conceivably police are offering right now. And what difference would that make then, do you think? If we're talking about the same services, we're talking about, as as Sergeant Addison went through, just some of the, the things that officers are involved in, uh, what would be the difference then, do you think, having that, say, provided by a youth worker as opposed to uh, even, say, a plainclothes police officer? So a youth worker isn't necessarily documenting your information in a database um, that's feeding into a larger police database. Um We're also talking about the trauma that police carry, whether or not they intend to. We're talking about police as an institution. And so their presence in school, uniformed, ununiformed, they still represent an institution. They're still there as an officer. And I really have to wonder why they are the best suited to deliver psychosocial programming or recreational programming or buy running shoes for students. Do you think there's any role then for police officers, even if it's not a permanent role or or a role as a liaison, is there a role for police officers and youth? I think that a great role would be for the VPD to look at the budget that it's spent on the SLO program and return that to the school board, offer to fund the programs that students need um, that they're worried about losing if the SLO program ends. I think that would be great to really take the funding that goes into the 15 officers throughout the VSD and invest in programs that are evidence-based, that aren't things like gang, um, you know, ending students' involvement in gangs. Like, really look at the underlying issues. Why are students involved in issues that might be harmful? Why are students trying to generate income? Do they have no income security at home? Are they getting into fights because they're being bullied? Like, let's take the police budget and actually address oppression. Uh, do you think that can't be done or there, there is no role for police officers to be involved in anti-gang programs? I think that we've seen quite clearly that anti-gang programs become a tool of racist policing. Um, and we need to, again, look at, like, why are youth becoming involved in gang life? Um, what is a gang offering them? Is it income security? Is it support? Is it a sense of community or family? Um, and, like, let's address 
the underlying issues there instead of criminalizing young people. And I think that that's a huge risk anytime police, uniformed or not, are engaged in these kinds of programs. Uh, and when we talk about youth who, and maybe some who have signed this petition or who have, have suggested that they don't feel safe and they don't feel supported by having a police officer as a liaison at their school, by removing the officer, how does that fix that problem? Does it not just leave this person who feels unsafe and unsupported still feeling that way? I think that students have spoken out and said it's the presence of the officer that makes them feel unsafe and supported. It's the fact that they might be walking down the hall and pulled into a conversation with an officer that they didn't expect. They were thinking they were going to the bathroom or to see the counselor. Um, It really is about the presence of police in schools. Uh, So you would like to see this then cancelled and, as you said, then redeploy the funding into some other type of, of support systems? Absolutely. And I really hope that that's the decision that trustees make tonight is a clear signal that the program is ending and that they're terminating the current MOU. All right. Uh, Manakshi Mano, we'll leave it there for today, uh, but I know we will be talking about this again uh, and looking to see what the vote is. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much. Manakshi Mano, criminalization and policing campaigner with the Pivot Legal Society.